Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm off, off, always glad to have all of you with us. We've got a lot of political news uh, to talk about today because most of you who were with us yesterday know we spent the hour talking with uh, one of the country's leading consumer advocates, Clark Howard, and I really appreciated the feedback I got from some of you uh, for having Clark on the show. He's always a great, great guest, and he knows more than anybody else I've ever known about how to deal with your finances and how to be a smart consumer. So if you haven't heard that show, it's available on our podcast or on our website at gpb.org slash PR. Um, so let's get right to it today. We're joined today by the managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Leroy Chapman. It's great to have you back with us again, Leroy. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, sir. Yeah. Hey, you're getting set. you're only about a month plus away from having to move back to your offices and you're moving into the AJC's going into a dramatically reduced office space, right? Uh, yes, sir. So what we're doing is uh, we are getting with the times, which means that uh, we will emphasize remote work and we will take advantage of that and we will de-emphasize the need for FaceTime and office space. Yeah, not everybody's going to have their own desk. You're going to have to share desks and computers and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, the AJC, at least some people, will be back uh, working in person. Um, but again, Leroy, we're glad to have you with us today. Uh, we're also joined by Renee Alegria, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Uh, Renee, speaking of uh, remote work, as a digital organization, is it easier for you all to, are your people working out of their own personal spaces? We are, and we have been uh, since March of last year. Uh, you know, we, we gather when we need to, um, but given, given you know, we've got teams all over the country and we've been, met, we've been working this way in, in a way for uh, a, a, a long time. Um, it just doesn't make sense for us to, to uniformly come back. How, how big is your organization, Renee? You say you have people all over the country. I've never asked you that question. Yeah, we're, so we're, we have about 50-plus employees all over the country. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about a story that's on the homepage of Mundo Hispanico uh, in a little while because it relates to a story uh, that's uh, unfolding here in Georgia, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Professor Karen Owen is back with us today, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Karen, we're glad to have you back. And and before the show went on the air, I asked you what you were working on. You're, you've contributed to or been the author of any number of books, often with an emphasis on women in politics. Um, and you're starting to work on a new book. Tell us about what, what's, I think, a really interesting subject. Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, a colleague and, and, and I are working on a project looking at some women who served in constitutional offices in the state of Alabama. They were elected by about the 1940s, and then they held three offices, which they then turned into calling them the merry-go-round offices because these women would run, they would be term-limited, 
and then shift and run for the additional offices. So we're examining these women and learning more about kind of how they got involved in politics to begin with and telling their personal stories of being women running in Alabama. Which, which is in keeping with a lot of the work that you have done, which is looking at women and how they get engaged in politics, how they get reelected once they're in, right? Yes, absolutely. What motivates them and then how are they successful to continue on? Mm-hmm. Professor Fred Smith uh, is back with us today, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, we, we've mentioned it a couple times, and it's probably worth mentioning it more often. You're also on the board of Invest Atlanta, which is a very important organization in the city. Uh, first, welcome. Tell uh, everybody in the audience, what do you do at Invest in La- Atlanta? Yeah, so Invest Atlanta is the city's economic and community development agency. Uh, So uh, we're responsible for uh, trying to attract uh, jobs and make sure that there is affordable housing for uh, our workforce and make sure that jobs that are here, um, that they stay here (laughs) Um, and that businesses that are here, that they expand here in ways that are uh, equitable. So I am really glad we asked that question. Because in many ways, it leads us into the first subject I want to talk about uh, today, which is um, David Ralston's uh, proposal to put $75 million into efforts to reduce crime, particularly in metro Atlanta. And of course, Fred... Uh, concerns about the spiraling gun violence, particularly in Atlanta, is of great concern to business uh, and uh, and community leaders who worry it's going to scare business off. No, it's absolutely um, the most important issue, I think, in Atlanta right now on people's minds. Um, and it seems that that's true in every city across the country. So I'm not sure it's a competitive disadvantage, but it's Uh, on the human scale in terms of what we all feel when we're walking down the street, um, when we're looking at the news, when we're reading the newspaper, um, we're all feeling it. And uh, it is extraordinarily important um, that we be able to uh, attract and retain um, the best police officers available. Um, And, you know, that's, I do think that's only one part of the solution. And there are parts of the solution that, uh, seem to be off limits. So anything that involves, I mean, you you, you just referred to it as gun violence. Um, as long as we're talking about violence, it seems to be politically acceptable to talk about, if you talk about the first word in those two words, then that's off limits. But um, yeah. hopefully we'll be able to at least reduce it. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But Leroy, let's start with uh, a kind of the broader look at what Ralston has proposed. He was down... Uh, at at on Jekyll Island, where he unveiled this funding package that will be introduced. It may be introduced during the special session that they're going to have for redistricting at the end of the year. If not, it'll certainly be a, a highlight of the session in January. So he's in front of a group of prosecuting attorneys. It's the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia. And he says, quote, we owe it to our communities to bolster law enforcement and mental health services in a time when some areas of our state are seeing a dramatic increase in crime 
and the number of individuals in need of mental health care. This proposal is one I'm proud to offer, and the House of Representatives will stand firmly behind when we consider it as part of our 2022 budget process. Leroy, it includes $1,000 raises for local law enforcement uh, staff and officers, including sheriffs in the counties. Uh, and it does have money for mental health services, among many other uh, aspects of the bill. Leroy? Yeah, so like always, the story is in the details, right? So we're talking about $75 million, which is, uh, you know, it's a considerable amount of money, but uh, is enough money to move the needle on what's happening right now? And that's the real question for this. Uh, part of this, uh, of course, is that there's some political advantage for this. So the the uh, the uh, the legislature, uh, the Republican-led legislature, wants to uh, use the crime issue to talk about uh, them, you know, being active on it. Uh, they point it out, and if you hear uh, Governor Kemp talk, he talks about the failure of local elected leadership uh, when he's uh, speaking of the crime issue. So this positions the uh, uh, Republicans to say that they are about solutions, and seventy-five million dollars certainly is part of a solution. But I think that the details, again, get to, um, you know, will this uh, move the needle? And certainly bonuses for law enforcement helps. Uh, but if you look at it uh, uh, historically, uh, the legislature a couple of years ago gave pay raises to uh, state law enforcement officers and did not uh, do that for local, even though the local folks said it would put them at a disadvantage in recruiting. Well, this essentially kind of makes up for that a little bit. Uh, so it will... Uh, kind of give locals a little bit more in terms of being able to uh, recruit. But the other big issues, though, uh, with mental health, well, you know, Georgia's capacity on a local level to address mental health is woefully inadequate. And will this money move the needle? Well, that, that remains to be seen. But, you know, we'll, we'll keep reporting and keep uh, talking to folks about that part. Yeah, it's been a concern for a very long time that mental health services are underfunded and they were cut from uh, the state, but they were reduced dramatically under a state budget a couple of years ago. And this is an effort to at least put some money back in. Uh, Twenty five million of this is earmarked for those pay raises for local law enforcement, uh, which is interesting uh, because we normally think of as you know, this notion that, that the state would fund state law enforcement, but as Leroy points out, we've, you know, local law enforcement agencies are having a hard time recruiting new people. Karen, another $10 million is going to go to raise the pay of prosecutors and public defenders, assuming, of course, this package uh, is passed and, and pretty much in the shape that Ralston uh, presents it. Um, but also, Karen, just on the political side of this for a minute, I know Ralston also says there's money in there to give the GBI uh, more tools to ferret out election fraud. Uh, we wouldn't want to leave that out of the equation, Karen. So you're right. There are a lot of pieces to this package. It's not as simple as just giving the $1,000 to the local law enforcement or to beef up. Um, mental health. There's a little bit of a political side here, and I think it leads into what Leroy was just mentioning. This is um, part of the Republican messaging going into 2022 that they're trying to handle more issues. And I think, you know, if we take a step back and think about it as the role of government, government has many very important roles. One is public safety, one is education, and another is health, right, to take care of the citizens. And so, this is a cornerstone of that public safety measure. If we think back, the governor and the legislature really focused on education during the pandemic and 
gave state employees and especially teachers raises. And now here's another component to public safety, dealing with an issue here and trying to address law enforcement. They are providing money to the GBI, not only in just the um, election piece that you mentioned, but also for their labs, because there has been a backlog mm -hmm. in the labs of the GBI. And I think that's part of this. Is public safety is the front officers on the street, but it's also the entire criminal justice system. And how are we facing that with the, the actual, you know, investigations the GBI is doing, prosecutions, and then also the defense. The package seems to have all of that. And maybe this money is not enough, as, as Leroy said, to move the needle, but it's a start. And especially a start to talk to political messaging for next year. Renee? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, look, the, the, the cynical side of me looks at this and says, okay, this is all, all politics, right? And it's one of the few areas that it looks like the Republican Party can coalesce around an issue that we're all worried about, you know? I mean, you, you, you have conversations with anyone in any part of this country, and you talk about, oh, someone was carjacked over there. Oh, somebody got robbed over there. Oh, there was another mass shooting where... You know, there, there are obviously details about all of those scenarios that make each one different from the other. But the worry is, is something we all share. And I think it's smart for any, anyone, in this case the Republican Party, to go forward and say this is what we think a solution is. Um, what, how, what and how the Democrats are going to come up with is going to be very interesting uh, going forward with how they, yes, talk about the details. I think the, the panel is so right on in that it's all about the details. And traditionally, I think Democrats have always been about the details, um, but sometimes they, they miss the, 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 the bigger headline and the connect with the American public. Well, what I think one of the things I think is interesting about the reaction uh, that we've seen unfold so far, Leroy, is that um, Democrats are very are, are I, I don't want to say they're enthusiastic, but they are uh, saying they can be supportive of this package depending on how it actually comes together, uh, and they have no choice really uh, to talk about public safety uh, and and to let Republicans corner the market on this and for them to oppose it makes no sense whatsoever. But just to amplify what Karen just said, Leroy. Um, in terms of uh, the crime lab uh, money that could be invested if this proposal goes through, um, Representative Scott Holcomb, of course, a Democrat from Atlanta, uh, is supportive of this because for a very long time he is the guy who has championed uh, bipartisan legislation to process sexual assault kits, which has been a terrible, terrible problem of backlogs in the past. But Democrats can't afford to sit back and watch Republicans take control of this issue with this big package. Oh, absolutely. So uh, when you think about the local level here in uh, Metro Atlanta, uh, these governments are all uh, Democratic governments now. Uh, the last election uh, essentially solidified that. So in terms of being able to uh, uh, oppose any of this or to point out inadequacy, uh, it, it would be fruitless because ultimately uh, uh, the, the issue of crime and public safety is one where uh, I think every politician has to be in a position of being solution oriented and any um, anything that undercuts, uh, you know, what, what is uh, you can talk about the adequacy of it, but a good faith effort to improve some things 
uh, politically, uh, that certainly would not uh, be a winning uh, uh, move. Now, um, the other side of that, though, um, on the local level, Democrats uh, want this money, and they think they can put it to good use, uh, especially when you think about uh, jails. That is one of the places where uh, they're having the most uh, difficulty finding people. It is difficult work. Uh, we've got a pandemic. Uh, when you think about what that means for putting one's health at risk, uh, a jail is a place where you do not absolutely do not want to be if you can't if you can, if you can avoid being there, uh, and that includes the employees. So uh, so there is help that's needed, and and there are places that this money can go that it can help immediately uh, once they get it. Now, uh, you know, everything is political. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I think that what we'll see is that uh, at a certain point, uh, Democrats will want to continue this to say that this is an opening. Uh, so, yes, we got this money. But how about the, these things? And once the door is open for something like mental health, I think what you're going to see is um, Democrats wanting to pick that up and say, well, uh, now that we've got gotten this funding, let me tell you the depth of the problem, what we really need. And it'll probably be another number that will come out of that. Well, there's another thing that, Fred, you've already um, uh, mentioned, and that is that the, 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 uh, there might be bipartisan support for measures to give law enforcement more tools to do their jobs well. And by the way, that represents a cultural shift from last summer when there was so much heat on law enforcement for the way it handled dealing in minority with its work in minority communities after the uh, murder of, of George Floyd and, and the other horrible uh, crimes that police committed last year um, and, and beyond that. But, but Fred, uh, first of all, you said at, at the important thing, during the, uh, during the Republican-led hearing at the state capitol on a, a need to do something about uh, increasing crime, uh, any effort to try to talk about dealing with guns Gun safety was uh, f verboten. You weren't allowed to talk about it in that hearing. <laughs> yes, and, and I, I'll uh, acknowledge that I read that in the AJC. <laughs> so it's not an original thought. Um, but yeah, no, that's that does seem clearly right. Um, I mean, the reality is there's already, even before last year, there's more guns uh, in the United States than there are people. Um, and for a host of reasons, right, uh, when it felt like the world was ending uh, during the pandemic, uh, when things were uncertain, um, and, uh, and also uh, amid fears about uh, government and state-sanctioned violence and so forth, um, there is even more guns. Uh, and I am a little surprised that no one really talks about that, it seems, as we're having this conversation about why is there a rise in gun violence. One part of the story surely is um, that there is an increase in guns. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, it, that there should be um, an effort to take away people's guns. Um, but it is to say that if, if, we should, if we're having an honest conversation about all of the reasons why we're experiencing this, um, that's got to be a part of it. I think going forward, uh, part of the question is, uh, what's the remedy for the urgent situation we find ourselves in? And then the other conversation is about what's the prophylactic? How do we um, prevent uh, finding ourselves in this situation again? Um, 
And I think on the on the front end, um, I do think that kind of in the immediate term, um, that making sure that we're attracting um, the best police officers possible, um, which involves uh, making sure that they're paid adequately, has got to be a part of the conversation. Renee, I mentioned uh, at the top that you have a, a story on the homepage of Mundo Hispanico this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that speaks to violence, not in Georgia, in Chicago, where your story is about a mass shooting uh, involving t- at least 14 teenagers, one dead, a bunch of uh, uh, younger people uh, injured. And, and although it's Chicago, it points out what this interesting kind of, what I see, and maybe I'm wrong, a, a, a shift in terms of how we're talking about crime. Last year, Black Lives Matter had made important points about um, aggressive uh, police tactics that were damaging to the black community. There was a lot of reconsideration about whether police uh, police officers were not trained properly, all of which is still uh, 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 true. But suddenly the conversation is shifting to giving police here in Georgia more resources to deal with crime. It's an interesting balancing act, I think, right now, Renee. Yeah, it it is. And all all of it is layered with this element, I think, of uncertainty, right? There's this vacuum of leadership that that we're confronted with. People just don't know who to trust, what to trust, um, and that leads people to, uh, you know, arm up. They don't. They want to protect themselves and, and their loved ones, you know, and unfortunately that leads to uh, situations where in which you do have these spikes in, in crime and violence. And, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are so many studies of the correlation between guns and crime and the socioeconomic levels, et cetera. Um, but I think right now, currently, we're, we are dealing with just so many worries out there. Those worries feed into a bunker mentality for ourselves. And in that bunker mentality, it's us against the world. And it's hard to, you know, cross that chasm. I think, too, that, you know, he's talking about people kind of in the bunker. And we also, in this last year and a half, have been in our homes more, paying attention to certain outlets, which just intensifies what we're hearing and seeing. And I think, you know, if you look at uh, news reports of crimes in city, you know, even here in Atlanta, we may not be experiencing what they're seeing in Chicago or Minneapolis. But the fear that's driving that that could potentially come here, right? So if you were listening to the news over the last couple of days and you saw in the San Francisco Bay Area, people are just walking into stores, shoplifting and walking out, and nothing can be done. And if a store owner tries to stop it, some of them are getting shot, right? And that is coming here. Like, will that happen to Atlanta? And, you know, just in my community, I live in the suburbs of Atlanta, and I'm hearing more and more of my neighbors talk about trying to get weapons permit. And it's a three month out interview to even try to get that. And it's amazing to me that that surge of interest, and we wouldn't have probably been having these conversations two years ago. And it's like, okay, the police need their tools, but they also need proper training. So they're protecting us and not profiling 
are harming our communities anyway. It is such a difficult conversation, but it's a conversation that must be had and addressed in so many different pieces and layers of what's going on. Yeah, I think any conversation about public safety that's honest is difficult. Um, if it's if it's not difficult, it's not honest. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, part of it also. I mean, I said I talked about the remedy piece of it. Um, when it comes to the the prevention piece of it, is we need deep investment in the t- the tools that help humans thrive that don't attract people to violence. Um, and mental health is certainly part of that, but it's also it's education. Um, it's, uh, it's making sure that, uh, that folks, uh, that people have a job, that people have a safety net. Um, and, uh, so if we're, if we're ta- having an honest conversation about public safety, um, we have to talk about how do we, uh, create a world, um, where people are not interested in being, uh, in a Walgreens in San Francisco taking things because, they're able to afford things. Um, yeah. And that's that's a part of the public safety conversation. Fred Smith, uh, you get the last word on this first segment of Political Rewind. Thank you all for that conversation. A lot more that I'd like to uh, find time to talk about. And uh, we'll take up some new subjects after these breaks. <clears throat> Emory University's Fred Smith, managing editor of the AJC, Leroy Chapman, Mundo Hispanico's president and CEO, Renee Alegria, and Karen Owen, professor of political science at University of West Georgia, are with us. Karen, Karen, I feel as though I was flirted with, I was led on, and then I was dumped by Speaker of the House David Ralston. He was on this show, oh, I don't know, six weeks ago, <laughs> when all the talk was maybe he's going to, he's thinking about making a run for the U.S. Senate. And he really sounded like he was seriously considering it. And by the way, I don't doubt that he was. But we learned this morning, no, David Ralston is happy with being Speaker of the House. And we'll try to retain that position after the elections uh, coming up. Yes? Right. So I think many of us here were thinking, okay, what is he going to do? He seems very um, interested in the United States Senate and running. And let's face it, every politician at every level is talked to by their staff and local you know, network about, oh, this is the position, this is the time for you. And it is appealing. But I think the reality set in, which is what we you know, mentioned earlier before the show, is that Rawson probably looked at oh, I'm going to be one of 100 senators if I were even to be elected from Georgia. And when I get there, I could possibly be in the minority. So I'm not even going to have an opportunity to really maybe shape and affect some of the conversations that I would like to. And in Georgia, I'm pretty well set. I'm a powerful player in the state of politics here. I can push out information about how the state's going to use the budget to help these issues the government should be involved in. And I think that, you know, he sees that it's important for him to stay here and handle some of those issues. Yeah, I kind of wondered about, yeah, I kind of wondered about to the the trade off. And uh, and I think you're right uh, to to leave Georgia and the power of being the Speaker of the House firmly entrenched into the majority, Uh, what had been a supermajority, but was still is a very strong majority. 
uh, that is a very powerful seat. So, you know, you wondered even from the beginning, uh, why would someone want to trade that for Washington? And the thing that's, that's less predictable when you're trying to look at uh, where will I be most effective, the thing that's the, the least predictable is what's going to happen in D.C. <laughs> uh, what's, what's happening here in Georgia is probably a little bit more predictable. So um, th- I think the more surprising thing, even out of him not running, is also uh, the fact that we've not uh, seen uh, a bunch of Republicans, uh, and I mean really high-level name Republicans who can hit the ground running, raise a lot of money, and be a formidable challenger immediately uh, to Senator Warnock uh, jump into this race. And I know there is that factor really? of, of Herschel Walker, but, uh, but I wonder about, um, you know, why we haven't seen more. Yeah, I, you really? know, I, 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 I really think it's interesting that local Georgia politics have transcended to onto the national stage. And I think that this past election has showed just the power of what Georgia politics will are in the national discourse. So 2022, 2024, you're going to see these local politicians have that stage. And I think you are going to see a lot of folks want to stick around to see what that that does to uh, to the influence of Georgia politicians nationally. Okay, so, Fred, I got to say, I think everything that's been said is so correct. I mean, why trade off being possibly the most powerful elected official in the state next to the governor as Speaker of the House for being a member of a club? Uh, And right now, Fred, I honestly, I've said this before, I, I know being in power, I know being in Washington can be exciting and glamorous, but when you look at what's happening in the United States Congress right now, why would anyone, anyone uh, want to go there because you're not going to get anything done or you're going to get very little done. They can't, they couldn't get their January 6th study committee uh, together. The infrastructure bill is on life support. Fred, it just seems to me to be a losing proposition to want to go to Washington right now. Yeah. So I'm going to answer the safe part of that first, which is, I mean, I, okay. I agree with folks. That, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I grew, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, Tom Murphy, <laughs> um, when I when I was growing up, was <laughs> clearly the most powerful Georgian, um, and uh, and yeah. So uh, why I agree? Why would one trade that? And why would one uh, put oneself through what would be an inevitably uh, bruising campaign? Um, uh, you know, like that's just. I mean, there 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 have been stories in the AJC about uh, Speaker Ralston over the past few years that, you know, that flared up and seemed to have uh, calmed down, but, uh, but a, a bruising Senate campaign would flare all that back up again. Um, but yes, um, we do have to figure out uh, how do we have a less polarized system? How do we hear each other? Um, how do we like, how do we take seriously one another's ideas how do we believe that we're all acting from a place of, of good faith? Um, and right now in DC, there is, there has been a fundamental breakdown of just the basic belief um, that everyone who's there is there to serve. Um, and 
Uh, and so everything has become a political battle, even infrastructure, as we're, as we're literally seeing buildings falling down in front of us. Uh, that is somehow still um, a, a toxic political issue. Everything is a toxic political issue. Um, and I, you know, and it's, it's easier to diagnose the problem than it is to solve it. Um, but absolutely, I, you know, at least in our, in our state politics, um, we're able to agree on some solutions. So just to build on that, I think, you know, we sit here and we say, why would we want to go to D.C.? You know, none of us right now are holding office on this panel. Why would you want to go and take that chance and be a part of a system that doesn't seem to be working? But if you flip this to those who are serving, I think they see that elite 100, you know, club Mm -hmm. of the U.S. Senate. And let's face it, every interest in America is going to those 100 senators. You become a center of attention more so than any other place you would be, right? Even if, you know, the founder set it up to be a deliberative body to slow down the process, but everyone's coming to you to talk through the issue and to get the vote. I think, you know, the the papers reported about David Perdue went up to the Senate, right? He's not even elected anymore. But it is attractive once you've held that office to be back in D.C., be in the center of the conversations of politics, be in that powerhouse and have people talk to you. And so I think, you know, we may not want to run and be there, but for those, there are some that really do feel that. They want to be in that role. They want to be the one that people have to come to and talk to. Now, for Rostin, that is happening in the state, and he knows that. Yes. And I know that he probably, you know, goes to D.C. is not that. But for other members in the legislature or even in Congress who cannot get anything done in 435 membership. Going to the Senate looks appealing. Um, all right. So uh, I've mentioned on the show before, Leroy, that um, the most unhappy politician I have ever covered in my experience was Zell Miller when he was serving in the United States Senate after eight years as governor of Georgia. He experienced exactly what we're talking about. He was the king of Georgia for eight years. He did a lot. He truly accomplished a lot as governor and then went up to the Senate. And Leroy, he was actually... Um, At one point, he told me he was working on a book that was going to be about governors who go to the U.S. Senate because he recognized (laughs) that they all shared this complete loss of the power they'd experienced before. That said, your paper, The Jolt yesterday, reported that David Perdue was, in fact, in Washington. And now there's this speculation, even though he said he didn't want to go after it, that maybe he is thinking about challenging Raphael Warnock. Well, um, and here's the thing. Uh, I think there was a calculation early on uh, with, uh, with, with he and uh, former Senator Leffler about uh, someone else emerging. Uh, that there would be a field, and now we're at a point where there really isn't. So we don't have a field of known candidates that uh, will uh, that Republicans can feel confident that will be able to raise the kind of money or have the kind of appeal. And also the election uh, calculus for for how do I get elected statewide? Well, you know the uh, uh, the election of uh, Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock uh, has challenged some things. So the kind of candidate you're going to need is someone who can stand up to what is now a new election map to get elected statewide. And secondly, um, you know, there, there's, you've got to raise a ton of money. <laughs> so 
so so given all of that, um, I, I think that uh, uh, after a loss, uh, both Purdue and Leffler, uh, as they walked away, uh, expected that there would be some field and Republicans uh, between the two parties uh, typically are the, is the more disciplined or at least has a track record for being the most disciplined uh, about being able to field a candidate. And this feels very different. In fact, um, you know, no offense to my Democratic friend, friends, this feels a little bit like the Democrats <laughs> from for a while, which means that uh, <laughs> uh, have, having having trouble selling on a candidate, and you know, uh, uh, maybe someone who might be attractive, flirting with it, and then not doing it. Um, but uh, I don't think any Republicans expect it to be here. So seeing him there, well, you know, it means something. It's not insignificant. Um, uh, I want to make a quick uh, uh, note, as long as we mentioned Zell Miller a minute ago. His grandson, Brian Miller, has announced he's going to seek the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. And his uh, showcase issue will be restoring his grandfather's Hope Scholarship to its uh, fully, fully funded former glory. We'll talk about that on a future Political Rewind, but it's fascinating to see the legacy of Zell Miller in his grandson now deciding to run for public office. Renee, before I get to the break, uh, Herschel Walker's name was mentioned once on this show. You are a uh, the president of a major uh, journalistic organization, so I want to ask your advice. Do we ever want to mention Herschel Walker on this show again until he says something definitive about <laughs> running or not running for Senate? That, that's, that's, that's funny. Yeah. Why did I get this question, right? I, listen, I—, I you know, I, Herschel Walker is one of those. It's like the uh, latest party favor to talk about, right, at any given gathering. Um, it's weird and exciting and bizarre, and it just may happen, right? So I think that, like, is he? Is he not? I don't know, but I, I, I think you're going to break your rule in that he will. You will talk about Herschel Walker before before you know he actually announces what he's going to do. You, you know, Karen, uh, there are not many days on the show when cop topics, we run out of topics, when the conversation slows down. But every now and then, uh, you know, we say, I look at the list and I say, oh, we got 10 more minutes. All I have to do is say Herschel Walker and we're set for the next uh, uh, 10 minutes of the show. Well, of course, I need to give full disclosure as a Bulldog and as a UGA grad. You can always talk about Herschel in my world. It's fine. You don't have to bring him into politics. We can just talk about a Heisman Trophy. But, yes, he will fill the void. Yeah. Uh, you know, Leroy, it's, if we're going to talk about uh, behind-the-scenes uh, uh, things in journalism, we have to say that uh, the jolt, uh, you got to fill a certain number of column inches with the jolt, and Herschel's good for that, even if things slow down a little bit in the middle of July. <laughs> Absolutely he is. Uh, he is a name. He is beloved here. Uh, and he has that mix of being uh, provocative, as he has been in his political pronouncements, so that has caused a, a ripple reaction about how he's seen now in the public. And it's funny, too, because, uh, you know, we have a sports department that is now, I mean, suddenly as you're writing about Herschel Walker, <laughs> you know, you think about that. Does this feel like we're sort of pr promoting Herschel now because we're talking about how great he was as an athlete? So it does create just a, a few things. But, yeah, in terms of the jolt, there's always going to be speculation. The jolt uh, certainly is about being able to be uh, behind the scenes with politics. And the secret to this, too, is that a lot of people who we talk to 
they have no idea what's going to happen. So they are contradicting each other constantly. So this is going to be an ongoing story with a lot of intrigue. Okay. <laughs> Let's get to our final break of the show. We have a very serious story to look at when we come back. Life expectancy in the United States has fallen for the first time uh, dramatically uh, since World War II. And we'll talk about who it's impacting most after these messages. Renee Alegria, let me read to you the first graph or two from the New York Times uh, piece yesterday morning. New federal data draws one of the starkest illustrations to date of how the coronavirus pandemic has disproportionately affected Hispanic and black Americans, showing they suffered a far steeper drop in life expectancy in 2020 than white Americans. Overall, life expectancy in the United States fell by a year and a half, the federal report uh, said, the steepest decline in the United States since World War II. And, Renee, um, to amplify that, uh, Hispanic Americans had had a, a, a longer life uh, expectancy, typically, than the rest of the pop, black Americans or white Americans. And now they have uh, dropped three years in life expectancy, black Americans 2.9 years, and so the pandemic uh, is revealing yet again the discrepancies in how we live our lives and the way in which we have access to the things we need to survive. Yeah, listen, it's, it's, it's such a sad, sad, tragic story, right? I mean, we've, we've all been affected. We've all, we, you know, in, in whether our work or our personal life, we've all known someone who's passed away or gotten it, gotten sick. But within the Hispanic community, I mean, it's 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 just reached such such dramatic levels. Um, it, 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 the Hispanic community accounts for roughly 18, 19 percent of the U.S. population, but accounted for 41 percent of all COVID deaths in in 2020. And I mean, just let that let that sink in. Right. Um, I think that the the, the piece that you read from the New York Times did a did a really good job of, of highlighting how Hispanics, um, you know, disproportionately account for frontline workers, you know, mm -hmm. risky public facing jobs like bus drivers and I mean, restaurant cooks, restaurant servers, uh, you know, that entire industry was just decimated. Right. But, you know, uh, they pointed out sanitation workers. Um, you know, the, the folks that are delivering your meals to your home and the Amazon packages that you're ordering, um, those are, for the most part, people of color, uh, predominantly Hispanics. And as a result, you know, we're, we're, we're catching it. We're being affected by it. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there's, there's a lot driving it, right? I mean, you, you just said that, that Hispanics had accounted for We actually had a longer uh, health span um, than uh, whites or African-Americans. And, you know, so much of what led to that stat was, you know, our, our close-knit ties to family, multi-generational. There's like a, a real sense of, you know, community unto our own. Well, that all of that got us into a lot of trouble with COVID. You then add a layer of distrust in the government, right? 
from the Hispanic community. You know, a large portion of the Hispanic community are undocumented. They they have been trapped and deceived by, you know, deportation efforts to, you know, tag undocumented. And that led to Hispanics not wanting to get vaccines because they'd have to go in front of a health organization or whatnot, a doctor, et cetera. And, and that unfortunately looped back around into uh, more, more folks dying. Um, we, can't, we can't, of course, get out of the misinformation hole, you know, which unfortunately exists. And, and you know, you, you couple all of that, and yes, you have many, many deaths within the Hispanic community. Um, Leroy, uh, uh, the jobs of frontline workers that Renee's talking about in this Hispanic community applies to many uh, black Americans as well. Oh, absolutely. So when we we talk about um, frontline workers, certainly, and uh, their increased risk that they took during the pandemic, uh, that's a factor. Uh, We talk about the uh, realignment of our economy and the gig economy means that uh, we've got lots of folks, uh, especially folks of color who are you know, earning their paychecks uh, and uh, do not have health insurance. Uh, that's part of it. And, and if you don't have health insurance, and this is really about that as much as anything, uh, then you're not being seen by a doctor. So um, that realignment in our economy has been a factor too. So we've got about a million and a half Georgians who don't have health insurance, uh, if, I'm, if that, that number's about, uh, about right. And what, what, we, what that means is that Georgia stands out among states. Uh, I think that ranks us about in the top five, I know, in terms of proportion of uninsured. So this problem that we're talking about is, is a Georgia problem in this very diverse state. So the mix of those folks who are on the front lines who are being exposed, the, um, the, our economy sort of being um, uh, recast before us and uh, more folks having to go without health insurance uh, it's become a pretty deadly mix uh, with uh, all the threats that are out there. Fred? Yeah, I mean, disparities are terrible. Um, but the raw numbers in terms of how many people are impacted is worse. If five people were impacted uh, and there was a disparity, that would be bad. Um, but what's really driving, I think, uh, so much of what we're all feeling um, as Renee pointed out, is that we, I think at this point, we all know someone who has been on a ventilator or um, or who's passed away. Um, I have an uncle, uh, I have a mentor who's passed away from this, this deadly disease. Um, and uh, it is, I mean, the, the, pre, the pre-existing um, uh, Problems in terms of not having access to healthcare and so forth; those are all uh, those are all prevalent here. Um, but if I can just make a personal plea right now for anyone who's listening, who maybe you're waiting to hear more before you got the vaccine, um, mm. I hear you, I understand. But at this point, this many months in, um know that this is you that's a part of how this ends it's a heroic thing to go right now and get the vaccine uh and so if if anyone heard me if one person heard me uh, i'm glad i made that plea um but i think that's this is the moment to do that 
thank you, Fred. In fact, on tomorrow's show, we're going to talk a lot more extensively about uh, just that, the issue of the unvaccinated and how political leaders on both in both parties are uh, trying to encourage or are discouraging uh, the vaccine. But we'll turn to that in more depth on tomorrow's show. Uh, Karen, you're welcome to make a, a, um, a comment or two about this subject. So I think, you know, we started this piece talking about how the this is the steepest um, decline since World War II. And usually when we see these declines, it's not related to this type of pandemic. Sometimes these life expectancy declines come because of, you know, violent waves or other type of health choices humans have made. And this was not a human choice to have COVID-19 show up on our shores, right? That here it is. And I think seeing this, I feel like we usually see a turn, right? It goes back up because we are a developed nation. We will have better health care and, and things will turn it. But in this, I'm afraid we may see the impact for multiple years until we do have more people vaccine, vaccinated and we actually get more of a grasp on what's going on with the virus, which I think I hope these numbers will change. But right now, it seems very sad that we are right at this point. You know, uh, Renee, I think one of the saddest stories that I read in my in my in the newspapers that I pick up in the morning before I uh, get ready while I'm getting ready to do the show was the story this morning that quoted a, an emergency room doctor who talked about the number of people he is, has treated for COVID who are pleading to get the vaccine while they're in the hospital with COVID-19 and on, and on ventilators, and his saying, you don't understand, it's too late. No, I, I, I read that story, too, and was just struck by, you know, just the plea, right, of regret that a human would have when they're there, about to be, you know, put on a ventilator, which is, you know, my, my biggest fear. I think everyone who's read anything about how this disease affects people in different ways, just the idea of being placed on that ventilator and having your lungs just, you know, liquidate is just like a terrifying, you know, thing. Um, look, I, I, I think that this is a moving target still. We this, the variants and what we know about them and what we don't know about them are going to, you know, proliferate. I, the the importance that everyone has to get this vaccine is is unfortunately not a given in so many households, which is a real tragedy, you know. Um, and it's you know uh, up to I with at Mundo, for example, we I mean it's our mission to get the word out in every way we possibly can to our community. Um, sometimes bridging the gap between a government that doesn't know how to reach our community and a community that mistrusts information from the government. And we're there to supply that. So, you know, everyone needs to do their best. But I, I, I really respect the plea to people to, to go out and vaccinate because it's just it's really about people talking to people. Renee Alegria, you get the last word. I was so uh, absorbed by what all of you were saying. I've completely lost track of time. Amelia saying, we've only got a minute. We've only got a minute. Well, now we have less than that. So Renee Alegria, Karen Owen, Fred Smith, Leroy Chapman, what a terrific conversation with the four of you today. Thank you so much for being uh, with us today. We're back again tomorrow with another show. 
I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. It looks like maybe masks are coming back, so think about wearing one when you need to. And as Fred Smith says so eloquently, please think about getting vaccinated. Bye-bye.